1 Samuel 21. We've been going through and studying about the, the lessons that we can learn from the kings of Israel. And um, I said a few times throughout this study that the reason we're going through this is that uh, we can see a lot of parallels between our Christian life and uh, the lives of the kings, the lives of the people of Israel, because they were God's people. They were uh, the kings specifically were representatives of God to the people that they served. And so with that, um, we can see in our Christian lives, we're meant to be God's representatives in this world today. And um, we can see through these different kings uh, how God worked in their lives, how he related to the people, how their relationship with God had an effect on uh, the world around them. And so I think all of those things... Uh, go together into lessons that we can learn from them. And so far we've looked at uh, Israel demanding a king. They wanted their way, not God's way. And uh, God gave them what they wanted. And they ended up with a psycho, right? Mm -hmm. And so anyway, they ended up with King Saul. And we've talked quite extensively that God had planned on there being a king, but Saul wasn't it. David was it. Uh, all the prophecies and everything pointed to the fact that there would be a king and that uh, it would be a king out of Judah, not out of Benjamin. And David was already born. He was already alive. He was already tending sheep, right? And all of those things, he was actually, what we're going to find today, maybe if we get there, uh, that Samuel was alive all the way up through until almost the time that David became king anyway. And so if the people would have waited, they could have done without all of the insanity that was the reign of King Saul. But God gave them a man that they desired, gave them a man after their own heart, right? And doing the things according to the flesh or according to man's wisdom and ended up being a mess. And God had withdrew his hand from Saul and he had put his spirit on David and Saul is just going through and doing uh, what an earthly, uh, fleshly motivated political leader does. Mm -hmm. And we can see parallels from King Saul to even current day political leaders. Yeah. Uh, Self-serving, self-seeking. We're going to find out today he was very, um, very paranoid. He thought everyone was out to get him. And that might have been some of the evil spirit that was there to harass him and whatnot. But anyway, God chose David, a man after his own heart. And though David had his failures, though he had his imperfections, uh, David repeatedly uh, is a good example to us of the Christian life. It, he is a, honestly, he is a realistic example. Okay? And I know sometimes within, um, and we were talking in the car about uh, like Christian uh, media and things, Christian entertainment, how, you know, if you ever watch any of the Christian movies, that the the Christian characters in it tend to be um, unrelatable. Y'all ever notice that? It's like everything is perfect for them. They do everything just right and all their life is in order and all of that. And it's unrelatable. But whenever you come to David, he is relatable, even though he's a king, because he has uh, successes and failures but he is an example of a, a good Christian, really, in an Old Testament sense. Okay? 
And so what we've seen so far, David was anointed, uh, but Saul wasn't happy about it. They tried to do it secretly. And the longer it went, the more that David says that he behaved himself wisely. Everywhere he went, he behaved himself wisely. We talked last week about what it means to behave yourself wisely. Uh, how the way that we act in the world in which we live is going to have an impact either for God or against Him, right? Mm -hmm. And if we behave ourselves wisely, God can use that, God can bless it, God can open up uh, opportunities and do different things. But if we do like Saul and we live according to the flesh and according to our own whims and desires, we're going to end up making a mess out of things, right? Right. And so God can bless whenever we behave ourselves wisely. It doesn't mean that we live perfectly, but it's that we seek to live in a way that is honoring to God. And so anyway, the more that he behaved himself wisely, the more he grew in the favor of the people of the land. Uh, God gave him victories, and the people sung, uh, Saul killed his thousands and David his ten thousands, right? And so the more popular David became, the more hated he was by Saul. And so what we saw last week, Saul tried to kill David on multiple occasions. And finally, um, it came to the place where David knew he was no longer safe in the palace. And he decided he had to leave. And so he and Jonathan had the whole thing out in the field where Jonathan shot the arrow. And we remember that story, right? Jonathan shot the arrow and it was a sign to David, wherever David was hiding at, that uh, Saul is out to get him and he needs to go away. He needs to run away. They met. They had their uh, had their tears and their sorrowful goodbye and everything. And uh, they parted ways. And David is going to see Jonathan, according to what's written in Scripture, he's going to see Jonathan one more time. Jonathan's going to come out and meet him in the wilderness. But that's going to be it before Jonathan's dead. Uh, but anyway, David and Jonathan part ways. And that brings us to chapter number 21 where we're at. And just to show, a, just to kind of paint a picture of where we're going with this, okay? Uh, the next 10 chapters cover about 10 years, okay? And I'm not going to attempt to cover it all tonight. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> we'll see how far we get with this. But what I want to do is I just want to kind of jump through David's wilderness experience here and see the different... Uh, Events It kind of goes from event to event, okay, over the next 10 chapters, and see how David um, acts, both good and bad, in each situation, how God uses it, and how this wilderness journey is God preparing David for the throne, how this 10 years of waiting wasn't wasted, okay? And so with David, he was anointed several years before this. He's rose through the ranks. He's had battles. Uh, one and all these things. He's married Saul's daughter, right? Had a couple attempted murders uh, on his life, attempted kidnapping, right? All these things that has happened. And if we put ourselves in David's place, we would be questioning God big time. Wouldn't we? Because Samuel comes to David, anoints him king, says, God has rejected Saul. You are now the king. And then the way that we do things, we would... Uh, immediately be seeing how we're going to go from David, the keeper of the sheep, to David, the shepherd of Israel, right? Mm -hmm. And so how does he get from the pasture field into the palace? That's what he's trying to figure out. If, if 
we're honest, that's what we would be trying to do, right? We would be scheming, we'd be plotting, we'd be trying to figure out how this works, how to advance our cause, and we would be very discouraged because that's not the route that God took. He didn't take him straight from the pasture to the palace. He took him on the scene journey, right? And if we look all the way through the Bible, we find that this is a an extremely common trend that we find, right? Uh, God doesn't do anything quickly. We want him to do things quickly, but he doesn't do anything quickly. Uh, he purified the nation of Israel 40 years in the wilderness, right? Before Moses was fit to... Uh, be the leader of Israel, he spent 40 years prior to that on the backside of the desert. Remember Moses came out and he slew the Egyptian and he thought the people knew that he was going to be their savior, their deliverer, and they'd be happy to see him and they weren't. And he ran away 40 years in the wilderness, learning not how to be a king in the palace, but how to be a shepherd of the sheep. And so God taught him there. He taught the people of Israel 40 years in the desert, right? And on top of that, we go through how many other people did God give the wilderness experience to? Try to get you guys involved a little bit here. Yeah. Yeah. Even in the New Testament, you got wasn't Saul went to. Or Paul went to yeah. the wilderness. Yeah, so I was in the wilderness of Damascus for several years where the Lord had uh, gave him clarity about the scriptures, right? Jesus. Jesus. In the wilderness. And even with that, he had to go uh, uh, by the way of the cross to get the crown, right? So Jesus. John the Baptist yes. was a man of the wilderness. He ate locusts and honey and wore a girdle of goat hair or whatever. Nephod and Gotair, a leather and girdle. We find that Elijah spent a lot of time in the wilderness. He had his wilderness experiences too, right? Uh, there was someone else in the Old Testament I was thinking of. But I'm losing it for the moment. Oh, Abraham. Abraham had the promises of God. Look how long he had to wait before they were fulfilled. And so this is a common theme all throughout. Anytime that God is going to do something, anytime he's going to use someone, he patiently molds and shapes them over a period of time to get them into the place where he wants them at, to where he can use them. And we have the idea within modern Christianity that we get saved and then all of a sudden somehow there's supposed to be some sort of a magic event. All of a sudden we're super spiritual, right? We've got it all figured out. We're ready to go. And what ends up happening is that uh, God works behind the scenes. He works slowly and surely and steadily. And it's not until after it's done that we can look back and see God's handiwork throughout those periods of time. And we feel as if we are trapped, if we're stuck, as if we're wasting our time, right? And that's one of the things that we're going to be looking at tonight is that uh, David, whenever he's running from King Saul... He's hiding in caves. He's hiding in forests and swamps. He's staying, uh, basically trying to preserve his life. And if you would have asked David at that time, he could have named you many different ways that he thought his time could have been much more profitable. 
I mean, he had led the people of Israel. He was a uh, a very good uh, military strategist. He was a very good military leader. If he could have been uh, put in the place where he was the commander over the military, Saul definitely wasn't doing anything. They could have eradicated the Philistines and the Amalekites and all these other guys, mm-hmm. and his time could have been much more uh, profitable yeah. through all that. But God had different plans for him, right? Yeah. And so that's what we see all the way along is that we have to learn. This is our main application for us, okay? We have to learn to trust the process, yeah. to trust God that he knows what he's doing. He is God and I'm God. Because, as I said, if I was writing the story, I would go from A to B. Oh, yeah. You know, I would be taking David and, you know, everyone hears that David was an anointed king. They saw the failures of Saul and they kicked Saul out, they killed him, they did something, and they went and got David, put him on the throne, and happy days, everything's grand. Right? Mm-hmm. That, you know, nice and easy and not messy at all. But was David ready for the throne at that time? Was the people ready to submit to David at that time? No. no. Or they had they thoroughly learned their lesson yet? No. <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, they had to see how badly the king that they wanted was going to turn out, right? And even after, and I'm getting ahead of myself, even after David becomes king over Judah, it still takes several years before the rest of Israel throws out Saul's one remaining son. Doesn't have to throw him out, and he ends up getting killed, I believe. And gets rid of the one remaining son, and then they come and they're like, okay, David, now we'll take you as our king. And so even whenever it should have been like the great victory, the great, uh, you know, the moment where he could relax and breathe a sigh of relief, David finally becomes king of Judah. Right? It's like a partial fulfillment, right? And then he's got to wait a few more years for the rest of it to come. And so throughout all that time, how many times is he questioning? How many times is he saying, did God really mean it? Does God know what he's talking about? Is God even there? Is he going to make this happen? Did I misunderstand it? Did I mess up and disqualify myself? Right? Throughout all of these, I can imagine a lot of the questions that he has. Because even myself, I have questions as I go through. You know? I mean, even with me, uh, just a moment of transparency here. Okay? Okay. with being called to preach, surrendering to preach, uh, coming here, wanting to start a church, all these different things. And then I'm constantly aware of my failures. I'm constantly aware of how things aren't going the way that I thought that they would. I don't have things under control that I thought I would have had control of by now. And uh, I'm like the, the um, I guess it's not a proverb, the... Uh, Anyway, the illustration of the, the pottery saying to the potter, why hast thou made me thus? You know, I look at my defects. I'm like, God, why did you do this? Yeah. Right? Anyone else? And so we're like this all along. And truth of the matter is, uh, who knows what God has planned for the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years? Who knows where we're going to end up at? What God's going to do? Or if he's going to do anything. Right? Because we have no promise that in the end that anything's going to come of our lives. 
And I was, and I've said this before, but I was challenged once. Uh, what if God's plan for you, for the ministry He has you in? What if His plan for you is failure? Because God is able to do that, and it's God's prerogative, right? And we find several of God's prophets in Scripture that their ministry was a failure. I mean, by about every measurable standard, the only way that it was a success is they were faithful. Right. And that is success in God's eyes. Yeah. Right? It's required of a steward that they be found faithful, right? And that's what God expects out of us is faithfulness, not success. And so sometimes it is God's will for us to fail. I mean, if you look at Noah, do you think that Noah, whenever he stepped on the boat, that he felt like a, a success? Noah and his family, and that's it. He preached for 120 years. He said he's a preacher of righteousness. No one listened. Mockery, ridicule, it was him and his family. We look at it now, it was successful because we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for him. Right. But in his eyes at the time, it wasn't a success. Elijah, he didn't feel like his success. He says, no one wants to listen to me. Jeremiah, definitely didn't feel like his success. God told him at the beginning of his ministry, he says, no one's going to listen to you. He tells him, as a matter of fact, nothing's going to get any better, so I'm telling you, don't even get married, don't have children, because it's going to be a, a sorrow and a burden to your heart to see what they have to go through so they don't even get married. Right? But do we trust God anyway? Because as we see, we're part of a much bigger plan. He's working much bigger things. And he is able to put us uh, on the throne in the palace. Or maybe he has a season in the wilderness. Right? But we have to know that he is God. He is good. He does all things well. And even his will for us is good and acceptable and perfect. Right? Mm -hmm. If we will allow him to be God. If we'll take our hands off of things. Okay, so these are the lessons that we are learning from David as he's going through all of this. And so as we come to chapter number 21, it is not one of the highlights of David's uh, journey here. Because what has just happened, he has said goodbye to Jonathan. He has realized Saul has a personal vendetta against him that's not going to go away. Saul wants to kill him. And so uh, I'll read just a few verses here. And then uh, I'm not going to go through and read each passage, but just to get us a, a good start here, I guess. 20 minutes in, a good start. <laughs> okay. Um, then came David to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech was afraid at the meeting of David and said unto him, Why art thou alone and no man with thee? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king hath commanded me a business and hath said unto me, let no man know anything of the business whereabout I send thee, and what I have commanded thee, and I have appointed my servants to such and such a place. Now therefore, what is under thine hand? Give me five loaves of bread in mine hand, or what, uh, what there is present. And the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread under my hand, but there is hallowed bread, if the young men have kept themselves at least from women." And David answered the priest and said unto him, of a, truth, uh, of a truth, women have been kept from us about these three days since I came out. And the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in a manner common, yea, though it were sanctified this day in the vessel. 
So the priest gave him hallowed bread, for there was no bread there, but the showbread that was taken from the from before the Lord to put hot bread in the day uh, when it was taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg an Edomite, the chiefest of all the herdmen that belonged to Saul. And David said to Ahimelech, There is or is there not here under thine hand a spear or sword? For I neither brought my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom thou slewest in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If thou wilt take that, take it, for there is no other save that here. And David said, There is none like that, give it me. And David arose and fled that day for fear of Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. So we'll stop there at the moment. And so what we find is that David is now on the run. He has went from being in the palace, uh, serving uh, Saul as an armor bearer and as a uh, soldier and as chief musician. And now he is on the run because Saul is going to be hunting him like a wild animal, basically. And so as he is fleeing, this is still a somewhat new concept for David. David was the one that rushed into battle against Goliath. He was the one that was always bold, always strong. Uh, he had beaten many people. He doesn't know what it's like to run away. So this is kind of strange for him. And so anyway, as he is running, one thing that he knows is that if he is in trouble, uh, one place that he can go is to the house of God. He goes to the tabernacle. At that time, the Ark of the Covenant is not there. It's in the priest's house. But still the tabernacle is set up. And whenever he goes there, um, uh, it seems like the, the priesthood had kind of settled in this village of Nob. And he goes in and he talks to the priest. They have the showbread that's out and everything. And he is asking for food. But whenever he first shows up, the priest is surprised because David is alone. Uh, David always has his regiment of soldiers with him because he is a leader in Saul's army. So he's asking David, why are you here by yourself? He's afraid of him. And David begins to lie. Like I said, it's not one of his shining moments, not one of his best, one of his best moments. But at this point in time, David is afraid. And we do stupid stuff when we're afraid, right? And I have no doubt that David, in his mind, had good motives. He had good reasons for why he's lying. For one thing, uh, what if he tells the priest, uh, the king wants to kill me and I'm running away from the king? That doesn't sound good. Not only that, but this is a priest. This is a priest of God. He's a good man. Why should he bring him in to his troubles, right? So I have a feeling that David was just trying to protect himself. I think he was trying to protect Ahimelech. And so he told Ahimelech something that sounded good because of his position. Uh, it is very likely that Saul could have demanded him to go and do something quickly, and he ran so quickly he didn't have time to gather supplies. Mm -hmm. And so he said, my men are at a certain place. I'm here by myself. I left so quickly I didn't even take a weapon with me. It's Goliath's sword, right? I didn't get food, so he got the, the showbread, and then he leaves. 
but he's lied to the priest to try to protect himself, try to protect the priest. But we have a bit of foreshadowing that takes place. It mentions specifically that one of Saul's servants, Doeg the Edomite, was there. And this man was one of the, the leaders amongst Saul's herdmen. He was an Edomite, so he was a descendant of Esau. He was not a Jew. So what was he doing in the tabernacle? says he was detained there by the Lord, which, yeah. do what? Well, and one thing we find out as we go through this is Saul had spies everywhere. But this was his shepherd, one of, the, one of his shepherds. And with being a shepherd, um, I guess he would have reason to go by the, the tabernacle, right? I don't know. But what we do find out about Doeg, if we continue following him, He's very uh, opportunistic. He'll do whatever he has to to advance himself. doesn't matter if it's good or evil. And so with him being a servant to a Jewish king, one way that he could advance himself is by participating in the Jewish religion, right? So it could very, and this is me reading into it a bit, it could be very possible that Doeg was just there uh, going through the motions of Judaism to try to advance his cause. And the reason I say this, when we look at what all Doeg does, he is not a particularly religious man. He is not a moral man, but he will do anything that he can to look good to Saul, to advance his cause. And so uh, we have a bit of a, an intermission here in the story with Ahimelech and Doeg, but David leaves out from the tabernacle and he's trying to figure out where can I go and be safe from Saul. And this is where reasoning kind of leaves it, I think. And so he says, of all the places in the world that I can go to be safe, I am going to go down to the Philistines, the sworn enemy of the Israelites. Not only that, I'm going to go down to Gath, which is the hometown of Goliath, the giant that I slew. Fear makes you do stupid things, right? Mm -hmm. And so if we continue following the story, whenever he gets down into Gath, uh, he shows up before the king in Gath, uh, or before the king down in uh, the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines don't trust him. <laughs> Obviously. They said, wait a second, this is David. And they say specifically in verse number 11 of chapter 21, And the servants of Achish said unto him, Is not this David the king of the land? What do the Philistines think of David? And what do they think of Saul? This goes to show us a little bit about the perception of David at this time. This is the beginning of this, this 10 years. This is whenever David is uh, starting his his time away, okay, in exile. But even at this time, it is the people's perception that Saul has gotten pushed aside and David is now the king, even amongst the Philistines. And so they said, is not this David king of the land? Did they not sing one to another of him in dances and saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? Boy, word travels fast, right? <laughs> 
And so anyway, whenever David hears these things, he is now afraid again, and he pretends that he's insane, and he starts slobbering down his face, down his beard, and scrabbling at the gates, and clawing, and acting like he's some kind of a demon-possessed guy, right? That's what he starts doing, and the king looks at him and said, he's crazy, he's a madman, why did you bring a madman to me? Clearly this isn't David. And so David's like, escape that one. But repeatedly we're seeing him rely on his own wits, on his own wisdom and deception, right? And so he flees from, uh, from Achish, from Gath, and he goes out into the wilderness. But throughout all this time, I want to jump ahead just a little bit to what transpires as a result of his actions, his dishonesty, right? What? I know whenever he was uh, with him a lot, that he was talking about, you know, men with him and different things. But it doesn't seem like anybody was with him when he went to Gap, does it? At this point in time, it doesn't seem like he had very many men with him yet. Because, uh, okay, because getting kind of in the flow of things here, after he returns from the land of the Philistines, after he returns from Gath and he's out in the wilderness, that's whenever all the people start resorting to him. Okay. But no, it seems like he was fairly alone. I don't think he had very many men. If it was any, it was a handful. He may have been completely alone at this time. We don't know. What he told Ahimelech is, I have put my men at a certain place. I have appointed them this place, and I'm coming out on their behalf. And what it seems like, he left Jonathan, he was by himself. And it seems like he may have came to Ahimelech by himself. He may have went to Gath by himself. And so that would have been even more to um, confirm Achish's uh, suspicions that this was just some insane guy, right? Yeah, that's true. Because just some random guy comes up, they're claiming that he's David, but now he's slobbering everywhere and scratching on <laughs> Now, if he would have showed up with an army, yeah, yeah that's yeah. David. Yeah. Right? Okay, yeah. But it seems to me like he was alone or near it. Maybe if he had one of his closest confidants with him or something, but if anything, it seems like there was very few of them. And so that would have made him even more likely to be afraid, yeah. right? Uh, if he didn't have time to get food, he didn't have time to get a sword, he didn't have time to gather up his army either, <laughs> which was actually Israel's army that he was leading a portion of. And for him to say, hey, Saul's trying to kill me, won't you go on the run with me? They're like, no, because that would be treason, right? And so, yeah, that's a good point is that it seems like he was by himself. But following through and seeing the results of his deception here, uh, Saul starts um, in his paranoid ramblings. He says, everyone is against me. I don't have a friend. Nobody likes me. He's having a pity party. Mm -hmm. And what he's doing is he's trying to get sympathy. That's a pathetic leader, right? Yeah. And so anyway... In chapter 22, verse 8, it says that all of you have conspired against me 
And there is none that showeth me that my son hath made a league with the son of Jesse. And there is none of you that is sorry for me, or showeth unto me that my son hath stirred up my servant against me to lie and wait as in this day. Isn't that pathetic? He is the king of Israel, and he's whining about David. David's on the run. He's at playing the madman down in uh, Philistia, down in the land of the Philistines. And King Saul is sitting on his, his throne or whatever out there in the, the field, having audience, sitting over the people or whatever. And he's saying, nobody likes me. Everybody's mean to me. No one will help me out. Everyone's against me. And someone just let a, like slap some sense into him or something. But this is the way that he's leading. He's leading through manipulation, right? If you look through some of the rest of this, and we don't have time to go through it right now, but he was so paranoid that the only leaders that he had within the military were Benjamites. They were those of his own family. He would not allow anyone to grow, anyone to succeed. He put the most sniveling, most pathetic people in charge. I'm not saying just because they're Benjamites. He had to put people in that weren't a threat to him. He had to surround himself with yes men to stroke his ego because he couldn't have anyone who was even possibly going to make him look bad. He was even mad at his own son. He tried to kill him before, right? And so what we're seeing in Saul and his leadership abilities is he is a pathetic leader. He's one of the worst of the leaders. He's very insecure. He refuses to uh, allow anyone to question him. He refuses to allow anyone there that could possibly make him look bad. And then he manipulates all of the people that is underneath of him as well. And so Doeg the Edomite, verse number nine, uh, which was set over the servants of Saul, and said, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him victuals and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Okay, so he says three things that Ahimelech did for David, and only two of them were true. Ahimelech never inquired for David. And the idea behind that was using the, the linen or the ephod and the Urim and the Thummim to uh, ask of God. And the the picture that he was painting is that Ahimelech was uh, in alliance with David against Saul. Mm-hmm. That David somehow was conspiring and he came to Ahimelech and was seeking for advice of how to destroy Saul and Ahimelech was helping him. That's what Doeg was trying to, to paint here. Yes, he gave him food. Yes, he gave him the sword but he had no clue that David was running from Saul. And so anyway, verse 11, the king sent to call Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests that were in Nob. And they came, all of them, to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, thou son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said unto him, why have you conspired against me? That's jumping to conclusions, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That's the charge. You've conspired against me. Well, Ahimelech's answer in verse 14, it says, Who is so faithful among all the king's servants 
among all thy servants as David, which is the king's son-in-law, and goeth at thy bidding, and is honorable in thy house. So he says, you conspired against me because you helped David. And he says, well, David is one of your most loyal followers. Why wouldn't I help him? How is that conspiracy? Verse 15 says, did I then begin to inquire of God for him? Be it far from me. Let not the king impute anything into his servant, nor to all the house of my father, where thy servant knew nothing of this, less or more. And the king said, thou shalt die, Ahimelech, thou and all thy father's house. So now we find Ahimelech is the priest. His father's house, all of his family are of the priesthood. And Saul is so jealous, so insecure, so wicked by this time that he thinks nothing of killing God's priests. He thinks nothing of following after false accusations, believing lies. He's not seeking out the truth of the matter. Instead, his paranoia has got the most of him. And he's willing to turn his hand against anyone who he perceives to be a threat. Mm -hmm. And this is the path that sin takes us down. Yeah. Whenever we decide to go against God, whenever we decide that we know what's best and we don't care what God has to say, it leads down really a path of insanity. Mm -hmm. uh, the longer we go, the more bitterness, the more resentment, the more hatred comes in. Uh, the more we're going to believe lies. Mm -hmm. And Satan has plenty he wants us to believe. And this is why whenever we get away from God, whenever we are neglecting uh, our spiritual life, we are so prone to listen to the lies of the devil. Mm -hmm. Whenever you're not walking with God, whenever you allow sin to come into your life, I'm not saying that you're going to kill the priests. <laughs> okay? But whenever you allow sin to come to your life, whenever you have departed away from God, you're no longer walking with him, then you are going to have these things that come in. You're going to believe the lies of the devil. And he's going to sow, uh, sow seeds of doubt, seeds of fear, uh, seeds of bitterness and wrath and anger. He's going to cause you to believe lies about people, cause you to believe lies about things, cause division and uh, insecurity. All these different things will come into your mind. And there's been many times within uh, Christianity, within churches, within uh, families and friends and whatnot, that whenever people start drifting away from God, they start believing things, becoming paranoid about their fellow brothers and sisters, about other believers. And Satan wants to corrupt our hearts and our minds toward God, toward God's people. Right? And some of the most angry and resentful and malicious people you'll find are people who was raised knowing the truth and turned away from it. It happens. You look at the news, you start reading uh, some of these uh, threads and things on online, uh, the, some of these deconstructionists or some of the prior Christians, or you know, people who was raised in church and turned away from it. It's not just, hey, I decided it's not for me and I don't really believe it. They become bitter, resentful, hateful, vile toward it, right? And this is what we're seeing with Saul now. But anyway, so he determines without giving a thorough uh, investigation that not only is Ahimelech going to die, but contrary to God's law, it's the, the law of Moses says, the law of Moses says that you can't punish the children for the sins of the father. Okay? And so what Saul decides to do 
is genocide. And so he brings 85 priests, 85, okay, uh, before him, and he commands his men to kill them. And his men says, no, right? Except for Doeg. And Doeg says, okay, anything to advance myself and my cause. And he gladly, because he's an Edomite, he doesn't care about God, he doesn't care about God's priest, he kills them all. And then he goes and wanted to go to the city of Nob and to slay man, woman, child, and animal in the city of Nob. That's pretty messed up, right? And so this is what ends up happening. But where did all this start? How did Ahimelech get drug into this? By David's lies, right? And so David had good intentions, right? You think David was maliciously coming and saying, hey, I want to go lie to Ahimelech and cause him a bunch of trouble. No, David was coming to it and he's like, how can I approach this situation to cause the least amount of harm to me and to him? And see, this is the problem with our reasoning and our rationalizing, is we don't know how things are going to pan out. We don't know the end results of things. Our best of intentions can end up making a mess for a lot of people, right? And so this is where it comes back to the fact that it is never right for a Christian to do wrong. David could have justified in saying, well, it was only a white lie. I told it for a good reason, right? But it was still dishonest. On top of that, the reason why he was lying is because he didn't trust God. And so there was a moment of... Uh, a lapse of faith, I guess you could say, because David is saying, I have to find a way to rescue me. I have to figure out a way through this situation. I have to navigate this. I have to fix this. And he is not relying on God. And this is where he falls into this problem of him rationalizing reasoning, reasoning it out and falling back onto uh, fleshly methods to get through it. We don't find anywhere that he's stopping and seeking God's will. It would have actually been a good thing had he went to Ahimelech and inquired of him. What if he would have went to Ahimelech and said, said, I have never done anything against Saul, but Saul's jealous. He's trying to kill me. Could you inquire of God what he would have me to do? That wasn't there. Instead, he said, I need food. I need weapons, and I need no one to know what's going on. So I've got to cover my tracks and get supplies in case something goes down because of fear and desperation. And so this isn't all just to uh, cut down David. This is to show that he does the same things that we do. And... We need to learn a lesson from him that we can't predict the consequences. But the safest place for us is in God's will and in line with his word. And so if we are living above reproach, if we are behaving ourselves uh, wisely, then God can bless that. God can 
take care of that. But whenever we start relying on ourselves, our own wisdom, whenever we start relying on the means of the flesh, and we start sinning and trying to justify our sins, uh, there's consequences coming. And so uh, Saul has Ahimelech's family killed, and there's one that escapes and comes and tells David about it. Verse number 20, one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar showed David that Saul had slain the Lord's priests. And David said to Abiathar, I knew it. He had an inkling whenever this was all going down. He saw Doeg there, and he knew it was going to be problems, but he did it anyway. He kind of ignored it. Maybe he hoped. Maybe he told himself, ah, no, nothing will ever come of this. But he said, I knew it that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of thy father's house. Abide thou with me, fear not, for he that seeketh thy, my life seeketh thy life, but with me thou shalt be in safeguard. This is something great with David. Because Abiathar comes to him, and he says, you know how you stop by and talk to my dad? Well, Doeg was there, and he went and told Saul, and Saul came and killed my whole family. That's messed up, isn't it? And David's response was, it's my fault. And no doubt David had to live with that the rest of his life. Right? Now this might have been something that pushed even further his love for uh, the temple, for the priesthood, for uh, the things of God, because he realized in this that he was guilty and he was going to, like I said, he was going to face that the rest of his life. But at this time he said, it was my fault. He didn't blame it on Saul. Didn't blame it on Biathar. Didn't blame it on anyone else. He said, I sinned. I lied to him. I sucked him into this. I didn't trust God. And I've occasioned his death. And it was a lesson learned, a hard lesson for him. And so he tells Abiathar, he says, stay with me because the same one who wants to kill me wants to kill you now. But now you have the protection of me and the men that are around me. And now he's got the priest with him. But that brings us back to the idea there was men around him. This will be our final thought, and we'll wrap it up. I didn't get very far, but surprise. Um, <clears throat> but going back to uh, the beginning of chapter 22, it says, David therefore departed thence and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brethren and all of his father's house heard it, they went down thither to him. And everyone that was in distress and everyone that was in debt, and everyone that was discontented, gathered themselves unto him, and he became a captain over them, and there were uh, with him about 400 men. And so this is where it gets a bit interesting, okay? Uh, we find a parallel here. Uh, the rejected king has went away for a time, and he is starting to accumulate the rejects of the kingdom to himself. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? And it is, because David, in many cases, 
not in the case with uh, Abiathar and his father, but in many cases, David, being the Let me put this a different way. Jesus being the son of David, we find that David is often a type of Christ. We find that uh, he is a good shepherd, right? We find uh, that he is a king. We find that he is a sweet psalmist of Israel, right? And so all of these things we find is he ends up being a picture of Christ. And so Saul is a picture of the flesh. He is the carnal man. David is the spiritual man. And most of the kingdom has aligned themselves with Saul. Most of the people are following him or just staying with Saul by default, right? Saul has an army of somewhere around 3,000 men that are, is his standing army. And David now has 400. There is a remnant of people. There is a small number out of the whole that has decided to put their lot in with the rejected king, right? And we find that happening today with Christianity. You said, that's us, right? Is that in this world, most people are happy to continue following Saul. They're just part of the kingdom. They're just going to, by default, go the way that they've always went. As we go through the rest of these uh, verse, or the rest of these chapters of the 10 years of exile, you find men such as Nabal, who was seen as being a son of Belial. Uh, even his name means fool. I'd like to have that name. Name your kid Nabal, fool. And anyway, you find men like Nabal who come and mock David and still has an allegiance to Saul. You find men like Doeg who's just trying to make a name for himself in Saul's kingdom. And he's willing to do whatever he has to to the godly ones, to the priests, to David, anyone else, just to get a name for himself. And so we see a picture, an illustration here of Christianity in this world. Though oftentimes it seems that we're small in number, right? David had his 400. But God's doing great things with them, and one day they're going to be the ones that rule, Right? One day their king that for right now is rejected, one day he's going to reign. So that's a picture for us as well. But I want to look at these men that come to him. It gives us three different things about them. It says the ones that were in distress, the ones that were in debt, and the ones that were discontented. Okay? For all three groups of them, there either had to be something that was wrong with them or something that was wrong with Saul's kingdom is why they were with David, right? And no one is going to follow Jesus until they realize that there is something wrong with this world and with themselves. And so whenever it says that they were in debt, that is part of the, the issue with Saul's kingdom is that the people were getting to the place where they had to uh, basically enslave themselves in debt just to continue to live. It wasn't peace and prosperity like they were hoping for. And so these men were probably in danger of being sold into slavery for their debts. 
that was something that happened back then. If you couldn't pay your debts, it wasn't that you filed for bankruptcy. It wasn't that you went to collections. It was that you either went to prison or you were sold as a slave till you could work off your debts. And so these men are like, okay, I have gotten swallowed up in this system. I need rescued from it. And they came to David because of the debt that they owed. The ones that were in distress, they were being persecuted. The things that were happening in Saul's kingdom was not good for them, so they turned away from it, and they turned to David. And it says that those who were in, or those who were discontented, they had followed Saul, they had followed his kingdom for long enough, and they said, there's nothing here for me. I'm not satisfied with Saul's kingdom. And so they came to David. And like I said, the parallel comes to that. Uh, we have to realize that this world's not our home. Saul doesn't have the answers, that uh, there's a better king, a better kingdom, and for us to leave all that. And that's one of the reasons why, especially in the Western world in the current times, there's so, so few people that are actually distressed or discontented. Everybody's in debt. <laughs> right? But spiritually, they don't recognize their debt. They don't see themselves as debtors. They are satisfied in this world, and they're continuing on, and they're not going to turn to Christ until they get discontented, until they uh, reckon with their debt, until they see the distress that this world is in, and they say, I need someone to lead me. I need someone to rescue me. I need someone to save me. And so there is this group of men that come out from Saul and from following Saul and start following David. And David takes in all of the rejects. He takes in all the misfits. Jesus said he came not to call the righteous, but sinners, right? He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to bind up the brokenhearted, right? And so he says, give me your rejects. And most people don't want to be an outcast or a reject, but those are the ones that Christ is taking. And so these come to David, and final thought on this, David takes the rejects, these 400 men, they soon become 600, right? But they're the outcasts, they're the rejects. And we find that David leads them in such a manner that they become extremely loyal to him. They are willing to die for him. They are willing to, do, as a matter of fact, some of them leave where he's at in the cave because they're so loyal to him. They go through Saul's forces. They break through enemy lines and they go to Bethlehem just to get him a drink of water from the well at his hometown. Because they said, David, you're our king. We love you. We'll do anything for you even risk our lives for you. That's how dedicated they were to David. He raises them up and they become his mighty men. He's training them. He's elevating them. He's seeing them grow. What does Saul do to those who are surrounding him? He keeps them weak. He keeps them defeated. They are serving him out of fear, right? Right? They are serving him out of uh, personal 
greed, basically, a lot of them. And so whenever Saul says, kill the priest, they're like, no, we're not doing it. Whenever Saul wants to kill Jonathan, they say, no, we're not doing it. Saul's men aren't loyal. They are not mighty men. But David takes the outcasts and the losers and he grows them, he builds them, and makes mighty men out of them. See, this world wants people that will serve it. This world wants people that will stay in lockstep with them. God wants people who will love him, who he can transform and he can make something out of. It's a huge difference, right? So with that being said, I better stop for now. Does anyone have any questions or comments on what we look at with this? times as we're going through these studies it's not necessarily that I want to go like academically into it and break everything down but I want us to see things there slow down for a bit because I know I'm guilty of just reading through it's like okay I gotta check it off for the day I'm gonna do my daily reading I check it off and I read through it but if we stop and we start digging into it looking around a little bit it's amazing what God's put in his word Let's go to Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. And we do thank you so much, Lord, for uh, just all of the things in your in your word that we can learn, that we can grow from, Lord, for the encouragement and the warnings that we find in it. And Lord, we just pray, Lord, I ask you, Lord, to give us a, a hunger and a thirst for your word. Help us, Lord, to uh, serve you, Lord, as uh, David's mighty men served him. And we just thank you for being so good. Thank you for loving us. And all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.